What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, after decades of foot dragging, foreign trained nurses can now practice in Canada. What took us so long? Plus, from Australia to Alberta to BC, we look at the impacts of early and severe wildfires. And is it worth collecting loyalty points? We look at the ups and downs of Aeroplan and Air Miles. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. I assumed it, this is inevitable, I guess, with all the policing challenges that we've had in Surrey. But after years of sharing police detachments with their neighboring city, the township of Langley recently announced they want their own RCMP detachment. Now, keep in mind, Langley Township does have about 150,000 residents, and it's about 316 square kilometers. So when it comes to uh, size, it's a big community and growing very quickly. Now, compare that to the city of Langley, you have roughly about 29,000 residents, and roughly about the size of 10 square kilometers. I was actually in Langley City uh, this past weekend. It is a smaller community, that's for sure. Now, the two municipalities entered a cost-sharing agreement back in 1993. Uh, But, of course, uh, the new mayor of Langley Township, Eric Woodward, uh, says things have changed. Of course, the community keeps growing. He spoke to our Jill Bennett earlier today. Take a listen to his comments. Yeah, the township is five times the population and 30 times the geographic size of the City of Langley. So we face a number of different challenges that, uh, you know, City of Langley doesn't. And we need to see, you know, greater policing resources throughout our community from Alder Grove to Brookswood to Walnut Grove and in our rural areas. And, you know, focused on property crime and other issues that we would want them to focus on. And and uh, a lot of those resources are in the city of Langley. We're, we're dealing with rapid growth uh, far beyond the city. And, you know, by 2040, uh, we'll be at about 220,000 and they'll be at about 40,000. So we're very different municipalities growing at very different rates and feel that this is a direction that we need to go for the long-term future of our community. That is Eric Woodward, uh, the mayor of the township of Langley. He spoke to our Jill Bennett a few hours ago. Well, joining me now is Cash Sheed, former West Vancouver Police Chief uh, and also former BC Solicitor General and currently a Richmond City Councillor. Cash, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jazz. So, uh, as I said, uh, perhaps this was inevitable with the never-ending soap opera that is uh, Surrey policing. Maybe this is where we've come to that every uh, mayor is now looking around going, what about us? So, first of all, your thoughts on this in regards to Mr. Woodward's uh, comments. Uh, Do you think this is viable? No, I don't think it is at all. Matter of fact, I think it's going backwards. I think it balkanizes our services more than ever. But he indicates something that's very important. Uh, With the growth of population in regions here in British Columbia, we have to look and discuss the structure of policing in the province. We have to look at a new funding model because... What we're finding now from local governments, and we've heard it from other governments, uh, levels of governments previously, is now they're getting involved in the discussion of policing rather than just saying it's someone else's problem. So I draw the positive out of that. The problem, and we face this here in British Columbia when we had the dispute in the capital region with Esquimalt wanting to get away from Vic PD, the problem, from my opinion, and being the SG at that time, was these initial contracts that were set up on a percentage basis versus a service level basis. So when we have expanding regions, we've got to look at the service level that's required for each of those. So the Township of Langley does have an argument of increased service levels. Uh, compared to the city of Langley, but at the same time, if you balkanize the process more rather than amalgamating services, at the end of the day, it's going to cost the taxpayer a lot more. We spend $2 billion in the province right now on policing. Hmm. Now, I mean, in this case, when you look at it, one would argue, look, if this is an issue, why don't these communities just amalgamate? Do we really need two Langleys? I guess that there's a political answer to this as well, is there not? Well, unfortunately, uh, a lot of this is uh, the political answer, and I think we've got to go with the realistic answer. When you look at what's occurring in the North Shore, and it has been for several years, we have the city of North Van, the district North Van, and the First Nations being serviced by one amalgamated RCMP agency, and it seems to work well for that particular area. I think rather than throwing away with uh, what we have right now, given the fact that we are 
going to move forward, hopefully in the near future, on police reforms in the province of British Columbia. Don't do something that's going to bring us back and it's going to cost the taxpayer more money and it's going to confuse the matter of of balkanization, using that term again, rather than amalgamation. Mm. Now, let's uh, let's touch on Surrey just for a second. Uh, this has not uh, ended. Uh, it is still an ongoing issue. Um, you know, Brenda Locke and her council are probably going to be looking at the report, discuss it, analyze it, come back with some sort of response. Now, $150,000 has been put on the table. Uh, provincial taxpayer dollars to help Surrey get through this transition, which has irked a lot of ta- uh, uh, listeners of this show. And wait a minute. That was Surrey's problem. Why has it become my problem when it comes to my tax dollars? Do you still see SPS sticking around, or do you see this turning into an even bigger and more deeper uh, uh, fight with the provincial government? Well, I'm not sure how uh, large or deeper this can go, given the chaotic situation we have in Surrey right now. But I think the government, in my opinion, has made the right decision here, strongly recommending that they transition to it. you got to remember, that will be the largest municipality in all of British Columbia in the very near future. And I think if we can bring that down to some local governance, local accountability around policing, I think we're going to be able to perpetuate us implementing police reform in the region. You you and I have talked many times over the last three decades, Jazz, about what needs to be done, and we need to have those uh, highly densely populated areas serviced by one unified police service, such as Metro Vancouver, the capital region in Victoria, and of course the central Okanagan interior. And I think we can look at phasing in a provincial police service to serve the rest of British Columbia. We need to bring that back to where it makes sense, to where that accountability on the taxpayer dollar could be here in the province of British Columbia. So we don't have the disputes similar to what's taking place in the township and city of Langley. Uh, what makes you think this region will amalgamate just because Surrey decides to go with SPS? And the reason I say that, I know uh, many years ago, my reporting days, I remember Malcolm Brody, uh, quite annoyed at the RCMP, you know, uh, saber-rattling that they were going to go with their own uh, municipal police force. I think the cost was too high. Burnaby is still a major municipality. Richmond is the fourth largest municipality in the Lower Mainland. And I think in this province, uh, Burnaby would be the third largest. Uh, so he, there's two big RCMB detachments there, never mind the North Shore as well. What would convince those communities? Because that, my argument would be they just come back and say, hey, wait a minute, we got our financial house in order. Things are working. We're a safe community. Why the heck do we want to open up a can of worms with a municipal police force? Well, policing right now is not uh, serving the needs of the people in all of BC. And you know, we but, look but at hang the on, tax. We but look at but the if tax. you're in Richmond, if you're in Richmond, Malcolm Brody's going. It looks pretty good over here, Cash. And I'm sure in Burnaby, they're going to say it looks pretty good over here as well. We've got money in the bank. Uh, no thanks. I don't really worry about what's happening in Kelowna or what's happening in Dawson Creek or, for that matter, what's happening in Surrey. I'm worried about my home. So my question is how do you convince these mayors who I, I would argue I would argue they'd say wait a minute we don't need any of that it's ebb and flow and I'll tell you right now the highest cost for Richmond taxpayers is policing right now, and it's just going to go up. When you look at some of the impacts that are coming down the pipe to deal with policing, whether it's from a, uh, a singular point of view or a regional point of view, those tax, uh, it's borne on the taxpayer here, those expenses. So I mentioned early $2 billion in the province of British Columbia spent on policing. There's only one taxpayer here in British Columbia, and I can tell you one thing, Jazz, you and I talked about this before. We have never had the Auditor General look at how we spend that $2 billion in the province of British Columbia. We have to do what makes sense for the taxpayer. And this balkanized uh, uh, approach to policing in areas where crime does not stay in one particular area, it gravitates all across. CFSU Mm -hmm. just mentioned that they've got a province-wide mandate to deal with the gang violence that is taking place, the, the gun culture that's taking place all over the province. We need to think in larger uh, areas to deal with these problems versus our our uh, singular approach to it because it's going to become very, very costly to the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, what makes you think of Brad West, who's uh, who's going to listen to listen to you and say, "Wait a minute here, uh, I've got a quiet." 
uh, small community here. What's going to happen is if I buy into this regional policing, it's going to take my tax dollars, my community's tax dollars, and it's all going to end up in Surrey to deal with a growing community, some of the challenges that you just addressed, or Vancouver, uh, or growing, fast-growing communities like Langley. And I mean, they, they, every community's going to have its challenges, but the smaller communities are going to say, wait a minute, or even Surrey saying, wait a minute, all our resources is going to all going to end up in downtown, the downtown east side deal with their issues. We're actually going to lose policing. How do you bring everybody along when every mayor is going to go, wait a minute, I'm going to pay into it, and most of those resources are going to be focused upon Vancouver, Surrey, or other faster-growing communities? Well, that is some of the falsehood that's out there when we talk about amalgamation of services. And if you recall, when we held the forum in the Morris Watt Centre about 20-some-odd years ago, we had, and we joked about the croaking frog call from Delta, where, in fact, that was part of it. They had the uh, resources to actually respond to that. What happens now? And, you know, I've called for just not a, a, a patching over. I've called for structural changing to policing. And, you know, when you look at what Mayor Woodward's calling for, he wants service levels to be at a specific point in his uh, growing uh, community in Langley. And that's the important thing. When we set this structure in place, when we set the governance in place, it's all based on a service model. And that's what really irks me about Surrey. Surrey never did come out and say, let's build a service model that's going to serve the people that live, work, and play in Surrey. They came in with trying to replicate what they have right now with a different colored uniform. That is the route to failure. Cash, I'm curious, uh, the Toronto, uh, the police force either in Toronto or Edmonton, for the city itself or Edmonton, whatever it may be, do they do it well? Or like, There must be some challenges there for a large police force, for, for a large community, large city. There's got to be challenges with one force in these big cities. Well, there are challenges for any model of policing that you look at right now, but we have to ask ourselves, why are we the only uh, urban center in Canada where we don't have a unified police service serving an area where people work in a different community, play in a different community, and live in a different community, and we have a different model of policing, a different style of policing for those people that transition those three particular ways of dealing with life. Um, the NDP are still, you know, hesitant in dealing with uh, Surrey uh, and the policing situation there. They have to deal with it. It's forced upon them. Uh, but they're, you know, they're treading lightly. There are political, um, you know, there are political ramifications if they do this poorly, uh, as we all know. Uh, even if this does go to the Surrey Police Service, it, what I sense, I mean, I don't think the NDP have the, um, at this point, the will or don't I don't think it's a priority for them to move towards a citywide police force. This may be 10 years down the road. It doesn't look like at this point it's something they want. It's not a fight that they want. They've got other pressing issues around housing, affordability, many other issues that the citywide police force or regional police force isn't a priority at this moment for them. All levels of government have priorities, and that's just the way uh, the political environment is right now. I don't see that changing whatsoever. But when you're talking about protective services and community safety, you've got to keep this at the high end of your to-do list here. I believe that the timeline they are giving is a political timeline. When I talk to experts in the area, academics, people that I've worked with in the past, and people that are practitioners in policing at the leadership level right now, the realistic expectation, if you wanted to phase in a regional police service, eventually getting to a large provincial police service for all the province, the realistic timeline is two to three years. At the outset, three years. It can be done because, remember, we're not creating a new entity per se. We're amalgamating the resources that are already in place. And when you look at what we have right now, we already have the uh, wide area radio system in place, which is provincial. We have the ECOM dispatch, which is provincial. We have CFSEU which is provincial. We have transit, which is regional. We even got the RMS system, the Prime BC, which is provincial. So all of these uh, structures required for the amalgamation of services, they're already in place. We haven't had the luxury of having that before. So that's going to reduce a significant amount of time required to amalgamate the services. Cash, thank you for your time today. Pleasure, Jess. This morning I was reading the uh, Globe and Mail, and there it was on the front page of their um, website, uh, an article saying that provinces across the country 
are rapidly licensing thousands of internationally trained uh, nurses uh, after there have been significant regulatory changes in Alberta, in British Columbia, and many other provinces. Of course, we all know of our nursing shortage. But the fact that we are rapidly licensing thousands of internationally trained nurses relatively quickly was quite surprising. Think about this for a second. Uh, In Alberta, the nursing regulator says it's registered 1,413 internationally trained nurses uh, since they made changes on April 4th. So 1,400 plus new nurses uh, just because they made changes to uh, regulations on April 4th. That's more than two and a half times the number processed in the past four years combined. Uh, in Nova Scotia and BC also recently introduced similar changes to their regulatory uh, regulatory process as well. So they are also seeing um, a lot of uh, foreign trained nurses applying. Now, here's the interesting part. These aren't foreign trained nurses actually applying from the Philippines or from India or from China or from England or the United States. Uh, these foreign trained nurses are actually living in Canada. And we've in the past not recognized their training or provided retraining or provided them at least an avenue to get involved in our healthcare system. So these foreign trained nurses are living amongst us. They're our fellow Canadians. Just think about that for a second. 1,400 inter- internationally trained uh, nurses registered for this program uh, as of April 4th. Uh, in Nova Scotia, the regulator, the regulator there says it received 1,490 applications, so just under 1,500 applications from internationally trained nurses in the first two days since launching a new licensing system on May 1st. It's the 10th, just nine days ago, and nearly 1,500 people in Nova Scotia, foreign trained, applied for nursing. It's amazing. Uh, Here in BC, uh, the new Nursing Community Assessment Service, which confirms your your, uh, foreign-trained nursing identity, uh, was was launched uh, earlier this year. uh, This year, and they've received over 3,260 applications uh, since they were launched at the end of January. All in just a few months. Think about that for a second. Well, our next guest uh, knows a lot about this issue. Uh, He and I actually talked many years ago, probably a good 23 years ago about this issue. This is after he left provincial politics. But it was an interesting conversation as to why we cannot train foreign trained professionals. It's not just nurses. What about doctors? What about engineers? I'm sure all of you have gotten into cabs somewhere and found out that your driver used to be a doctor somewhere or an engineer somewhere. Well, I had a conversation with this next guest of ours, like I said, about 23 years ago after he left politics. Uh, He is presently vacationing in India, but uh, I wanted to talk to him about this today because all of a sudden, within the last few months, we have all these new foreign trained nurses ready to go. So why did it take us so long? We've been having this conversation since the late 80s, probably early 90s. Ujil Dasanj is the former Premier of BC and former Minister of Health. He is joining us now from New, De- New Delhi, India, where he is on vacation. Ujil, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, you know, I'm looking at these headlines uh, in the last week and even t- in today's Globe and Mail that thousands of foreign trained nurses can now practice in Canada uh, because of licensing rule changes uh, in Alberta, in British Columbia, and many other provinces. Uh, are, are you surprised at the numbers we're talking about? I mean, there's 1,400 internationally trained nurses uh, that have applied uh, since the, this new program in Alberta was introduced on April 4th. We've also introduced a similar program here in British Columbia. This seems like a sea change. Well, it, it, it is a sea change. It should have happened a long time ago. And we wouldn't have had the shortages that we've had. Uh, you know, there's, I mean, the... Uh, the um, nursing association and the doctors uh, colleges and things of that nature they've been they've been very reluctant to allow uh, these foreign trained nurses and doctors who live in this pro- in the provinces in Canada to uh, practice uh, their professions and uh, I'm glad that this is happening now I wish it had happened a long time ago we would have had the short I recall talking to you uh, after you left provincial politics, and one of the things I think you had mentioned to me, and it was a you know private chat we were having, and the difficulty in getting and finding, in, you know, getting these people uh, 
in you know in the workplace, uh, recognizing their credentials. Why was it these regulatory agencies, whether it be colleges, whether it be our universities, where was that reluctance coming from in your mind at that time? I well, I think partly uh, you know human beings are are uh, quite possessive about their jurisdictions, and they don't want to open up. They don't want to allow people that they are not familiar with uh, to come and practice medicine, practice nursing and other professions, whether it's engineering or anything else. And that's been the case actually with all of these professions. And uh, and there's also, you know, I've like I've lived in Canada for a long time. I lived in Britain before that. I'm a I'm a Canadian, uh, you know, Indian by heritage, but I'm a Canadian citizen. My values are now Canadian. But, you know, we are exclusive. Uh, Canada believed that it was superior to other jurisdictions. Rather than assessing the qualifications and aiding and assisting people to become qualified, to become members of those professions, we excluded them and did nothing to encourage them to enter. And, uh, and I think that's a shame. And I'm glad that that's changing. And uh, it's wonderful that we have this human potential within our own boundaries, within Canada, that's been sitting there, and now it's being used. Yeah, it amazes me that, uh, you know, we call for applications from foreign trained nurses, and the vast majority of them that are applying that have been accepted so far happen to be uh, uh, Canadians of Filipino descent, Chinese descent, Indian descent, Irish descent. Uh, South African descent. They're living in Canada, which, which which is incredibly shocking. It's not like we need them coming in from other countries. We actually have them trained. They're here, and for literally decades, we didn't recognize them. You know, Marie, and it's not just shocking, uh, Jazz. It's it's actually shameful. I mean, that, that we should actually look at ourselves as Canadians and say, why are we doing this to people that we bring in from other countries based on the point system? Based based on their education and skills, and then ignore them. And in the process, we suffer because we don't have the number of doctors and nurses and engineers and others uh, that can serve Canadians. And, uh, and, and I think that this is a bit of a lesson. It should open the eyes and ears and minds of the Canadians to what the governments have been doing, what these institutions have been doing, de- depriving Canadians of the skills and uh, and talents of people that live amongst them, and uh, and and make people suffer for treatment and you know in queues and in lineups. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is appalling that you jump into a cab and and you're talking to somebody who was a doctor in a different nation and 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 I remember covering this as a, as a reporter that you know when I talked to some of them I said, well, walk me through why you wouldn't want to go through retraining or re, re, to, 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 you know, get, get your credentials. And he says, well, I, if I go through yeah. the whole process, it's six more years of post-secondary in Canada, even though I was practicing medicine. And I think this case, it was a, an individual from Bangladesh. Uh, and, you know, he's yeah. got to pay bills to pay. He's got a family to pay for. He's got rent to pay for. And it, it was such a waste of human potential and capacity. Uh, and it is, you know, as we celebrate today, there were all these applications, but think about the decades and decades of doctors and nurses and, and engineers that, whose potential we, we, we didn't allow these Canadians to reach their potential. Okay. Uh, moving forward, what do you want to see? What do you think needs to happen next? Uh, this is a, a great microcosm in, in this case, and specifically speaking to nurses. Where do you think we need to go as, as someone who's worked in federal politics as well? Well, I think what we would need to go is uh, we should be actually coordinating uh, with all the provinces and have, you know, one college of physicians and surgeons, one college of nurses, one college of engineers in Canada. You know, all those professional bodies should be one body in the country for each of those professions. And federal government would, by by law, with the consent of the provinces, uh, streamline all those processes so that our, our, you know, needs are met. Our personal needs are met. Our labor needs are met. And uh, and, and it's been a shame. And this is the thing of pride now that uh, we're waking up to uh, to what's happening now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I know we're talking, uh, you're in New Delhi. Uh, it is early in the morning. Uh, there are just, uh, uh, yeah, early in the morning right now. So I'll let you go. Uh, I know you've got a, a busy few days there. Enjoy your vacation uh, and hope you're enjoying uh, private life as well. But I, I did want to chat with you because I was thinking back to that conversation we had literally, I would say, well, about 23 years ago uh, in regards to uh, foreign trained doctors. I, and I, 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 
I was much younger then, but it's still good. Thank you. <laughs> you and I both, my friend. You and I both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Enjoy your time. Thank you. Well, let's check in on uh, the main story out of Victoria this week. That, of course, is the Altera Housing Society uh, and its relationship with BC Housing. Uh, yesterday, um, the present board of uh, BC Housing asked that uh, Atira, uh, Women's Resource Society, um, return $1.9 million from the 2020-2021 budget, which they said was a surplus. It should be returned. They also said they wanted um, renewal when it comes to the leadership, but uh, its board, or Tira's board, said they have full confidence in CEO Janice Avitt, and, is, and uh, at this point, she is not stepping down. As many of you know, our, her husband, uh, Shane Ramsey, ran um, BC Housing for over 22 years, uh, and the complaint and what this report from Ernst & Young found was there's a pattern of mismanagement uh, which allowed a former BC housing official to spend millions of dollars in public money without proper scrutiny. And in many cases, they pushed projects towards Atira. Uh, and uh, at this point, everybody is, of course, asking, when will Janice Abbott, the CEO of Atira, step down? Uh, it's an, a story that continues to swirl in Victoria. Of course, joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Jess. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, I don't know with the Atira board saying that CEO Janice Abbott won't be stepping down. I don't know what that's, stubbornness, arrogance. Uh, I'm just quite surprised that they're actually digging in their heels. I'm not really surprised they're digging in their heels. What surprises me is that we haven't even heard from Janice Abbott. And this came up on Monday, mm-hmm. and there have been repeated interview requests made to her from every major news organization in this province. And she has responded to none of them. And we haven't heard her explanation other than this statement that was sent out uh, from the board saying, in essence, she did nothing wrong and we're going to continue to go as business as usual. Uh, It is quite bizarre to me, uh, considering that this is such an important nonprofit in our province in terms of delivering households, uh, homes. It is the number one home provider, the number one client of BC Housing. And yes, Shane Ramsey is now gone from BC Housing, but it is still such a crucial organization, and there needs to be some relationship between a tier and BC Housing. We know the new funding has been cut off by the minister, uh, Ravi Kalon. He vows, as you mentioned, to get back that $1.9 million dollars. Uh, but how that's all going to work, especially when it comes to the current uh, tenants of a tier, those current projects they have, is an unknown. And, and, I, and I think the, the public uh, deserves some clarity on that. And, and part that comes from Janice Abbott speaking publicly about this, which we haven't yet heard. Um, who is to blame for this? Is it the way the <laughs> NDP have handled this? And some have talked yesterday about Jen St. Dennis, who's followed this story for a long time from the TIE, and, and she says, look, it goes further back than that. It's 2010. I'd go further back to the B.C. Liberals. Yeah, who isn't to blame here, Chaz? It seems like <laughs> there are so many names that come up here. There's this tangled web that Atira seems to have created, which causes some significant issues when it comes to placing blame. So, just to look at the most recent thing that's unfolded is a breakdown of who is on Atira's board. And it's in essence a who's who of people who have relationships with those closest to power. Bruce Rolston, the force minister, his wife is on the Atira board. Rolston recused himself from any discussion in cabinet around Atira, but still she is connected to a high-profile NDP cabinet minister. Uh, Jeanette Ash, uh, the wife of former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and a former candidate for the NDP, she used to be on the board. There's somebody from Anthem Properties that's the chair of the board. That is a development company that BC United leader Kevin Falcon worked for. Like, these relationships are so interwoven, Jazz. And then you just look at the timelines, right? We have heard allegations that started as far back as you mentioned in 2011 or 2012, we reported last night on the news hour about a document I obtained that shows Steve Carr, the then chief of staff to the Minister of Housing, Rich Coleman, was made aware of significant allegations of conflict of interest. And those allegations outlined that Atira was ruled out of the bidding of a certain project, and then Shane Ramsey got involved, and then they were put back into the bidding and called qualified only because of that. 
Ultimately, a tier didn't get that project based on the decision made by BC Housing. But Shane Ramsey, based on those allegations, clearly was involved in trying to make his wife's um, nonprofit uh, more um, favorable uh, in in that bidding process. So there's a lot to unpack there. Blame is hard here. I think, in part, there needs to be greater clarity. But politically, I think both this current government and the former government did not heed warnings. And part of this is housing is so crucial. It needed to get done. Atira is ready to do it. And there was a blind eye turned ultimately to some of the things that was going on behind the scenes to allow that nonprofit uh, women's housing to be built uh, largely in uh, the downtown east side and other parts of Metro Vancouver. I'm looking at a, an article from, I think it's 2013 in the province, and I'm going to quote uh, a portion of it. I shouldn't be laughing, but when asked in 2011 about the Ramsey-Abbott marriage and the potential conflict of interest, Coleman, meaning Rich Coleman, the BC Liberal cabinet minister, former minister of housing, Coleman laughed it off as, quote, a non-issue. Well, it's an issue now, that's for sure. And it's caught up and once again points out what you have said, that it, this goes back beyond the NDP as well. So now moving forward, if, if um, Janice Abbott hasn't stepped down, essentially uh, Atira is telling uh, BC Housing uh, their banker, meaning taxpayer dollars being spent there, does, do you just let Atira manage what they've already managed and never again have them apply or, uh, or at the very least grant them any more do- public dollars? I think that's going to be the challenge the province runs into long term. In the short term, that's exactly what happens. And that will mean still significant provincial money going to Atira to help run their current projects. But as we move further along, and if there are providers that are unable to um, run uh, housing developments, then it's going to be interesting. It's also just a small part in a much larger issue, Jazz, that you're acutely aware of around how this province is hoping to administer non-for-profit and low-income housing. They are dramatically trying to move away from the SRO model. What that looks like long-term is unclear. It seems like currently Atira doesn't have a role to play in what that move looks like towards the future, but who knows? And and is it the province taking a greater role and really squeezing out non-profits like Atira? I don't know. That, that to me, is unpredictable at this point. Uh, if... Atira wants to play ball here with government that controls the purse strings. I think the only thing that they could do, the board, is is move on from Janice Abbott because in the current state, it doesn't seem like this is a relationship uh, that is repairable. But who knows? As you know, relationships and politics have a funny way of repairing themselves when it's in the best interest of both parties. So we will, we will see what that looks like as this evolves. Well, I mean, it's interesting, but I just don't know how somebody who can receive, uh, working for an organization, a non-profit, can receive millions of dollars, but in some things, they, some way feels they can thumb their nose at government that provides all the funding. I just cannot see how that relationship lasts. And I think a tier also has to a certain degree, okay, they're not worried so much about the broader public uh, mindset, but I think they should because I can't see members of the public saying this is acceptable. Absolutely not. It doesn't pass the smell test, and it never has, and I think that's part of the issue as well. So it'll be interesting to see how things transpire over the next few days when it comes to this issue. Richard, thank you so much. And quickly, Jazz, the other thing I didn't even mention, there's apparently a third Ernst & Young report into this conflict. We haven't seen it. What? The Premier doesn't even acknowledge it exists. Yeah, it came up today in question period from BC United leader Kevin Falcon. So th- this is not the end of this conversation, as you have alluded to, and we'll see if that other report ever surfaces itself. Well, I'd be very interested what is that next report going to say that we already don't know about, unless yeah, it's another bombshell that lands and more money is being spent. So we'll, we'll keep a close eye on that for sure. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. This week, there are over 700 members of BC's firefighting community, and that's uh, wildlife mitigation specialists, firefighters, emergency managers, wildfire scientists. They're here for the Wildfire Resiliency and Training Summit. It's an important five-day event considering the images that are coming out of Alberta, images that we've seen coming out of Australia, and of course, images right here in British Columbia that we've seen over the last two or three years. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the summit is Curtis Isfeld. He's a director of Fire Center Operations at BC Wildfire Service. Curtis, thank you for joining us today. 
Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. So how important uh, is this uh, event in regards to better prepare British Columbia for uh, wildfires, fires in general, uh, particularly in the era of climate change? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think uh, it's critically important for all of British Columbia for an event like this to occur. Um, wildfire doesn't disseminate in British Columbia. It affects all levels of society. And really, uh, the importance of this event is that it brings all those levels of society together within their respective organizations to come together to one spot uh, to share information and really to build uh, partnerships to help make a stronger British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Now, I said you're the Director of Fire Center Operations for BC Wildfire Service. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're, you're responsible for six regional fire centres, 33 zone offices, and there's about 1,600 staff uh, in all of that. Uh, yes, that's correct. So it's a big a big organization, lots of responsibility for you, particularly uh, in the summer months. Um, what has changed? Let's say if you're looking at your job today, from 15 years ago. What is different about it? Um, well, I would say I say the big difference is that uh, things used to be a little bit more predictable when it came to hazard management and emergency management in general. Um, things could be aligned to a planning cycle. I think what we're seeing 15 years later, um, if we, um, if we think, think to today, is is a very unpredictable nature associated to emergency management, particularly hazard management. We're seeing um, obviously longer wildfire seasons, seasons that are starting earlier, uh, ending later, um, coming with uh, weather patterns that um, are sporadic and sort of less predictable than what we would have saw uh, 15 years ago. Hmm. Um, What are you learning from other jurisdictions? I mean, Australia has its challenges, uh, you know, uh, different weather patterns at times, um, different terrain. Alberta, one could argue the same. What are you learning from other jurisdictions, whether it be Alberta, Australia, or even some of the Western states? Yeah, I would say uh, our partnership with all those agencies that you met is very robust. Um, There's quite an exchange of information that occurs both nationally and internationally. In fact, Uh, As part of this conference, we have representatives from CAL FIRE that will be presenting on uh, Friday. As well, we have a representative all the way from Australia that's attending as well, too. I would say the common thread of what those agencies have learned is that preparedness is a year-round job, Mm -hmm. especially in today's climate. And the requirement to focus on relationships at all levels inside your jurisdiction is of critical importance because there isn't one agency in any province or jurisdiction that can do this on their own. Um, It will take, and it does take, those relationships at all levels in the organizations and an integrated response in order to achieve achieve success. Mm -hmm. Uh, In regards to uh, the sort of, this is not just a a summer phenomenon here, you have to be prepared all year. Do we we need as as citizens to be putting more money into this issue year round? I mean, is the budgeting there or do you think we need to be spending more money in preparation for even more difficult uh, summers ahead? Um, Well, this this, uh, this particular government has invested... um, in BC wildfire uh, recently, uh, we, received, we received an uplift in our base funding and as well critical uh, programs in our prevention programs, such as our community resilient investment, have um, received significant increased funding uh, over the past few years and into the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to the Okanagan, in regards to the Caribou, is there one region that is more susceptible uh, to more of these wildfires moving moving forward? If there's one or two regions where you see significant increase in wildfires the last four years, or or is of concern for you moving forward? Uh, well, that that can change uh, on a year to year basis, actually, um, and really that's dependent on weather patterns and the fire indices that develop towards the end of the year. Uh, As an example, what I can share with you um, is that given how nice it was last October, October 2022, um, what we saw is probably the lowest precip levels uh, in a couple of areas, one being the northeast 
and in particular the south interior. And mm. so what that does is that actually over winter sets us up with uh, fire indices that put us into a position where we are paying attention to those areas, uh, obviously a little closer when it comes to preparedness and risk management. Mm. Um in regards to uh, firefighting themselves, uh, do we have to hire more firefighters year-round? I know in the summertime you, you ramp up um, and, and it, a lot of students also are involved as well. Is there a push now to have more employees full-time year-round as part of that budget process? Yeah, there was. Thanks for that question because, um, in fact, uh, just over the winter, uh, there was a conversion process that saw us take um, approximately 113 auxiliary staff and turn those into full-time positions. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, right now, we're sitting at around 1,600 auxiliaries, and we project by 2025 that number will likely be closer to around 2,000. That's a huge jump, um, considering uh, in a short period of time. But it, what it speaks to at its core is that there's a fundamental rethink on how we view fires and climate change in this province. And there's a, and there's a dollar bill attached to it at the end of the day. And I'm not saying that as a negative, but you're going to hire full-time people uh, and jumping and in, in increasing the, the, the staffing that much it speaks to the challenges ahead for us. It, it sure does. And it also, it also does another thing for us too, and that is that um, certainly our core mandate is wildfire, but uh, we are uh, – broader support service for other government agencies and local government when it comes to other hazards. Uh, Currently, we have staff uh, that are deployed in flood response efforts as well, supporting um, communities and First Nations. And it allows us having that extra staffing um, and increasing terms of our auxiliary staff allow us to be able to work in that space and support British Columbians as well. So if I'm, you know, when when I was in MLA, Premier Horgan talked about uh, the ability to, whatever the decisions you're making in government, you do have to have a climate change lens to them. So let's say the Ministry of Transportation wants to build a bridge or wants to build a road. Uh, is there a conversation with your department or at least somebody in regards to climate change on what things they could be doing a little differently in regards to dealing with the long-term implications uh, of some of these projects uh, in relations to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this government's undergoing right now currently a forest landscape planning process, which uh, is basically all interested parties on the land base have a say in designing uh, what activities will happen on the land base over the next 10 years and what considerations need to be given to the protection of the values that have been identified uh, in those forest landscape plans. Well, it's an interesting topic, and I know there's lots of work ahead uh, moving forward in regards to wildfires. I used to cover a lot of them in my early days as a reporter. I know the tremendous amount of work on the front lines uh, from staff uh, throughout this province, and it is uh, a little tougher now with climate change. Uh, and uh, <laughs> government has to move quickly. And, and uh, I'm glad you're doing some of this stuff because uh, we've uh, been given enough examples of the last few years in this province in regards to challenges before us. So, Curtis, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jess. Take care. Loyalty cards were initially designed to offer rewards to regular customers and encourage them to continue shopping at the same store or perhaps using the benefits of a specific airline. They've been around for a very long time. Think about Aeroplan for a second when it first started. Very popular, but at the end of it, Air Canada basically wanted people to use up some of their points. Is it still around? Absolutely but it's moved from one credit card, one bank uh, to another bank uh, over the many years. Uh, Air Miles is another one-time popular program, uh, but it has seen better days. Think about the fact that um, there are many um, high-profile companies offering products on Air Miles' uh, website. They're not there today. So many have asked, uh, in this era, is the loyalty card done? Is this the the golden age of loyalty points gone as well? Now, these cards, of course, do uh, allow companies uh, to, to um, really find out a lot about their customers, uh, to really dig in and, 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 and go through the data. It's a source of data, a rich source of data for many of these companies. But as these cards have become more sophisticated, it seems the 
consumer benefits have begun to wane. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, credit cards and loyalty cards is Patrick Sojka, founder of Wards Canada. We want to talk a little bit about whether the golden age of loyalty points uh, is over. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show again, Jeff. Uh, you know, there's always so many cards uh, out there that make themselves available, lots of marketing geared towards uh, Canadians in regards to loyalty points, whether that be uh, Aeroplan, Air Miles, and many others. Let's start a little bit to chat a little bit about the, the ones that probably have um, a very high profile. That would be Aeroplan and Air Miles. Uh, there was a one time uh, that uh, everybody seemed to be on Aeroplan or Air Miles. Walk me through, is, this, is it still worth it uh, to, to, to uh, go for Aeroplan or Air Mile points? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely, it definitely can be. Um, you know, Air Canada, ever since they uh, took over Aeroplan or, I guess, bought it back from the company, you know, that they, they sold it to or, uh, you know, they split it, split apart, basically, right, um, and brought it back in. Aeroplan revamped and has, you know, gone back to their roots as, you know, focusing as a frequent flyer program. So there's a lot of value there towards travel. So they're a really good travel program for flight, even uh, economy class. A lot of people are like, well, there's not much value in economy class. Aeroplan um, is now starting to show more value there because what they did is take away that big sticking point that a lot of people had, and that was the extra fees on tickets. You know, Aeroplan has uh, built those into the, the point pricing now. And, and a lot of times um, they're, they're very um, reasonable, especially for, for economy class flights. And then, you know, if, if you're somebody who earns lots of points, business class is there and provides a lot of value. So there can be value there. But that being said, that's towards travel. And a lot of Canadians, well, you know, they're kind of mixed on travel now after the whole pandemic and everything, and they've kind of reshifted their focus financially. So they're looking more at cashback rewards. So there's other options out there. And Air Miles itself, <laughs> they're kind of in limbo right now after the whole uh, bankruptcy news of their, their parent company and we're waiting to hear if BMO does take them over or not. And if BMO does end up taking them over, then yeah, there's potential there. But right now they're kind of the, the program to, um, I guess, what's a problem? I don't want to say be wary of, but, you know, you may not want to focus on. Mm-hmm. When people are considering uh, loyalty points, loyalty cards, whether it be cashback, whether it be flights, whether it be uh, other goods and services, what kind of broad things should they be looking at? Yeah, so basically, you know, I always tell people you have to look at the earn and the burn. So that's like your earning side and your redemption side of things. And and then you also look and see uh, at your own shopping or spending habits and what, like the places you like to shop and everything. Like, you know, a lot of times we can recommend American Express cards because they're they're very valuable. But if you're somebody who only shops at Loblaw family stores, so like Real Canadian Superstore, Loblaws, No Frills, those type of things, um, Amex won't make sense for you because they don't accept it. Um, so you basically have to look, uh, kind of delve deep into what you as an individual, you know, where your shopping habits are, how you want to be rewarded. So, yeah, do I just want to keep getting cash back or, you know, be rewarded for my groceries? Um, cause that's where most of our money goes to. And then that savings we can later on use towards travel, or do I want to collect the travel points right now so that I can save, you know, on that vacation later on and use it towards that. So basically it's kind of, you look at both sides of the equation, look and see, you know, what cards and programs you feel you can earn the most on based on, you know, kind of your lifestyle habits. And then also look and see how you want to be rewarded. A lot of times you'll find online people talking about, oh, this program's so great, but it may only be great for business class or first class rewards. And in reality, for a lot of Canadian families, that's kind of out of reach because you have to rack up hundreds of thousands of points. So, you know, these are all things you have to take into account. So, you know, I want to travel economy class. These are the programs I should look at. Um, what it, what's the uh, advantage for companies to have these lo- these loyalty point cards? Is it, is it the, just the issue of loyalty, or, or are these uh, cards and these points profitable for them beyond that? Uh, they're definitely profitable for them, especially when you look at like airlines, um, even south of border of the U.S. Um, American Airlines itself, the airline portion, the last I saw, uh, doesn't actually make money. It's the the credit cards and the, the loyalty program that is the biggest value in making money for an airline like American Airlines. And we kind of see the same thing in the travel space, that the loyalty programs do bring a lot of value, especially for airlines, um, because they're selling those points through the credit card companies and and making money off that. Um, So, yeah, it's not just loyalty. I mean, they're called loyalty programs because, yeah, they they want you to try and stay loyal. And I think that's what happened with Aeroplan. 
years ago when they did split from Air Canada, they kind of ran separately. Air Canada had its altitude program for its uh, elite travelers, you know, frequent travelers, and Aeroplan had their own elite program. They kind of made this division, and I think those, you know, those um, Air Canada, those people who were, you know, the big revenue generators and very loyal to Air Canada were kind of dissuaded by, hey, you know what, Aeroplan was a frequent flyer program, and here you go and, you know, split it off and make it, you know, a shopping program, basically. So when they brought it back in-house, it, it really kind of reinvigorated the, the program and, uh, you know, it appeased the people who generate a lot of revenue for, for the airlines. So, yeah, it's loyalty and profits. Yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, when these loyalty programs do run into trouble, it's always some poorly thought out uh, marketing idea. As you say, Aeroplan uh, kind of went sideways for a little while because it was in- incredibly popular when it first launched Air Miles as well, and now it's trying to find its footing again. I'm curious um, in regards to points themselves, because there was a time where there were a lot of points, a lot of people kept their points at the uh, Aeroplan to the point that Air Canada uh, set a, a deadline as to when you, you had to use some of your points, because that is still liability sitting on the books. So for consumers, is it okay to allow your points to continue to grow, or do you, should you be using them in a in a semi-regular um, time frame so you don't accumulate too much because sometimes these companies <laughs> can change their rules in the middle of all this. Yeah, that is a question that we, we always seek the answer to, and really it comes down to the individual. Um, in general, you know, the sooner you can use them, the better. Uh, we always say that a mile or point earned today won't be worth as much, you know, tomorrow um, because there are devaluations. Now, yeah, Aeroplan and Air Miles had both put in those kind of expiry rules where they put a lifespan on your miles. And, and you know, Aeroplan dropped theirs quite a bit early because somebody actually launched a class action lawsuit against them for it. Um, Air Miles, that was probably the, their biggest downfall, which started their, their spiral, you know, was in 2016 with their expiring miles. Um, I won't go too in-depth in, in that. A lot of people already know about that. But so basically they, they had to change the rules. But, yeah, so uh, going back to original question, you have to ask yourself, like, you know what? You know, there's people who are trying to save up for that dream vacation. And I saw it with people with air miles. They're like, you know what? I'm getting so close to 13,000 miles, I can get a flight to, you know, New Zealand. Um, and then the next day, air miles says, oh, now flights to New Zealand are 15,000 miles, not 13,000 anymore. So you, you always have this potential of needing more miles. So what I tell people is like, if you are saving up for something in the future because you do want that dream vacation, and if today, you know, Aeroplan is asking 110,000 points for a business class flight, you know, to Asia or to Europe. Um, try to budget or plan to earn 120 or 130,000 to, you know, accommodate for any potential devaluations in the program or, or fluctuations in the reward rates. Um, but other than that, a lot of programs now allow you to do part points, part cash, and even Aeroplan does that as well. So that's, that's your other option to use up those points faster. And a lot of times, especially with the proprietary credit card programs, you don't lose any value by, you know, redeeming $500 worth of points and $500 cash to get a $1,000 ticket. Mm-hmm. Patrick, thanks for your time. Thanks again, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.